Welcome to Off Hours, a conversation between John Edwards and Chris Manning. So last episode, we touched a little bit on really expensive liquids, things like lubricants for watches and resins for 3D printing. And with the lubricants in particular, it's astounding how much a very small amount will cost you. And just how long that very small amount will will last for you. And something interesting that, that popped up recently is uh, a video published by Daniela Marin and, and Peter Speak over at The Naked Watchmaker that pays a visit to TriTech, which is the production facility where Superluminova is made, which is the, the glowing pigment used in, in watches. One thing that jumped out at me from that video is the fact that a single gram of superluminova powder is enough to print 100 to 500 watch dials, which is significant and makes me realize the fact that the little tubes of it that I have are, are more than likely going to last me a lifetime, provided they'll still be glowing uh, in a couple decades. But I do know that, that this stuff does tend to deteriorate over time and, and no longer holds that that same glow factor or afterglow. I don't know what the half-life is on Superluminova. Uh, it, it must have some kind of half-life in terms of how how bright it is and how long it stays bright like that, but I, I have no idea what it is. Well, thankfully, it's not a, a nuclear radiation half-life. So <laughs> we were able to get rid of that with saying goodbye to radium, although you can still get timepieces with tritium in them. And the nice thing about tritium compared to radium is that, that the radiation on it isn't strong enough to even really get through the the crystal on a watch. So you don't really have any risk of nuclear radiation exposure from it if you, if you were to wear it. Meanwhile, radium is, is just nasty. That's nasty stuff. And it has a, a half-life of about 1,300 years. It is nice to see how Superluminova is made and... It's also nice to see today that they're able to do excellent color matching between both the non-illuminated pigment, so when you're just seeing it in daylight, as well as the illuminated pigment. They're able to color match both of those to match either existing dials or a particular color that you're looking for. So it's kind of nice to be able to see that they do have that much flexibility in the way that they can actually mix and match those colors for you, depending on what it is that you need. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they can also have two different colors if you wanted so you can have it look a certain way in daylight and then look very different at night and actually you can even have something looks exactly the same during the day and then will glow differently at at night which is something that omega has recently leveraged in some of their new releases in the past month or so yeah i've got some blue superluminova at the studio and in in normal light, it actually looks blue, but it doesn't glow blue properly. It actually glows a green, which is a little bit annoying to me that it, uh, because what I really wanted was something that was going to glow blue. Ideally, blue be blue as well when you're just looking at it, but I'm a little annoyed that the, uh, the loom doesn't actually glow blue properly. And I do have a red that, that actually looks a very nice red when you're just seeing it in normal daylight, and then it also glows a nice red too, so... It it would be interesting to see what's involved in actually getting proper colors made up from them. I, d- I don't know what sort of volume you have to purchase from them in order to be able to get that uh, that sort of service. I know James Thompson over at the Black Badger has a special relationship with him, and he and the stuff he's doing is fairly boutique. So I imagine the the numbers there aren't, aren't super huge, and he's able to get just about any color combination that he wants from yeah. them. Yeah, even though he's not doing a large amount in any particular color, he is doing enough volume with them between his own projects and projects that he's worked on with other companies like MBNF. He's done work with them. And James has just recently worked with GOS on an Aurora Borealis watch as well, which has some specific colored superloom in it. So I suspect that just the the volume of projects that he does with superloom is is what's allowed him to you know, to, to sort of build up that relationship. I don't know if I would be able to get similar service from them just being, you know, 
a small watchmaker and saying, oh, I'm going to use little bits of this on something. Uh, I'm not sure that I'd get that much out of them. Mm-hmm. He's certainly built a name for himself in the domain of small things that glow. Yeah, he is Mr. Super Loom. And as far as getting that perfect blue match goes, that is absolutely something that Tritech is capable of. And a number of watch manufacturers do have looms that are fairly standard, actually, that, that glow a nice blue, including mm. both Rolex and Omega, which make a, a fairly high volume of timepieces that glow. Yeah, I'm sure that the I'm sure that what I what I would want is is out there and it's I'm sure they've made it and it's probably available in in massive quantities compared to what I would need. It's just a question of finding them, right? It's it's funny because they the suppliers that are out there that that tend to supply to small people like us, they don't tend to have a large selection of colors available. So, that's the, that's really where you where that falls down. And I noticed you've also picked up some pigment from Stuart Semple. I don't know where he's sourcing his his glowing pigment from, but perhaps it's just the volume of it that's sitting in the jar. <laughs> but it looks like it has quite a nice, bright glow to it as well. And yeah, Stuart Simple, we've talked about him because of the Black 3.0 that we've experimented with for our Project Minotaur dial. And he does a lit pigment as well, which is a, a glow-in-the-dark pigment like Super Luminova. As you said, I, I don't know who it is that he's he's working with to to have those pigments made, but I have a blue pigment from him that is actually quite nice and it glows a really nice blue. And I actually find that they glow for a longer period of time based on a similar amount of exposure to UV light than some of the Superloom. You know, I've experimented with sort of small quantities of both to see how they last and the the stuff from Stuart Simple certainly holds up. It it's impressive how bright it is and how long it lasts. So it may be that they, he's actually working with them to to have them make it. I don't know. I'm sure that they're not the only people that are making something similar. And he doesn't have anywhere near the the range of colors that they do. They I think he has a green, a red, a blue. I think that's all the colors he has right now. But his are significantly less expensive. Yeah, so I, I'm actually working on a on a few pieces right now, a few pairs of cufflinks that I'm sort of experimenting with some some design ideas, and I'm going to put a little bit of of loom in them. One of them is going to be the red loom from Super Luminova. The other one is going to be the blue loom from Stuart Semple. So we'll see how they they actually work in practice and how they respond in the real world. And in the vein of how long things glow for, Super Luminova does come in various grades. And X1 is the mm-hmm. the one that shines and, and continues to glow for for the longest period after it's been exposed to, to light. And then they have an, an A grade, which is what I would presume is the most commonly used superluminova pigment. And I shouldn't be using superluminova so interchangeably like this, because they do have specific names for the various pigments that Tritech develops. Superluminova is, is certainly the most popular and, and common Swiss-made pigments. And to Seiko's credit, they actually make a really nice loom that has an incredible glow to it. Mm. It's just another one of those things that, that Seiko does, that fully vertically integrated. <laughs> well, that was important for them for their dive watches. So they, they wanted to make sure that they had a good good loom for their dive watches and and so I'm I'm not surprised that they spent some time and energy making sure that that worked well. One of the other interesting things that I gleaned from this video is that Superluminova is actually a ceramic. So when it starts out as uh, just the raw material, it doesn't glow. And then they take that raw material and they dope it with some rare earth elements and stick it in a kiln in in a very specifically formulated atmosphere. And when it comes out, it is a block of fired ceramic. And then they break that down and and grind it down in machines that they they weren't willing to to show us. And then that powder is suspended in a binder. And then that binder is what allows the glowing pigment to adhere to the hands or indices or, or what have you on the watch. 
And then from there, the, the pigment goes into their, their quality control center. And that room, personally, it didn't look like a room I would, I would like to work in. It looked windowless <laughs> and, and kind of bland. But I can understand why, when you're performing quality control on Superluminova, why you'd want a windowless room. But the equipment in it was quite neat. So using laser diffraction to analyze the size of the particles. And then they're using a fluorescent spectrometer to measure the actual color that is radiating off of it when it's glowing. And then a camera set up to measure how long it actually glows for after it's been exposed to UV radiation. So with these cufflinks, you'll be making that glow a product you think you'll you'll have out in the market this year? Oh, I, I don't know. I would be surprised if I sell any or if I do, if I sell very many of them. It's just something that I was, I was looking to play around with because I wanted to experiment with some Loom products to see how they function and, and see how well they work and, and whatnot, just to sort of get a sense of how I could use them in design. I don't think that I'm ever going to use them in a watch. Uh, I can't see myself, you know, applying loom to watch hands or to indices or anything like that. If I was going to use super loom or something similar in a watch, I would probably go down the road of what GOS has done with a number of their watches where they're doing something different with it. Like in this case, they're using it almost to, to light up the whole dial from the outside and so it's a little bit different than sort of a, a normal loom situation. They have one that's really quite an interesting design where they have a very, very thin piece of mother of pearl that's mounted over top of a plate that has super luminova on it. And there's enough UV that gets through the mother of pearl that it can charge the super loom. And then at night, it will actually glow and light up the mother of pearl and and radiate light through it so the ideas like that maybe there's something interesting there for me but i i don't think that i'm ever going to use super lumen or anything similar in in any of my watches it, it just doesn't doesn't really appeal to me from an aesthetics point of view so this is more just an experiment to see how it works and and whether it's something that i might actually use in another design more along the lines of what james is doing where he's using it in some jewelry and things like that like he does a really nice ring which has Sakura petals in them. And then he's got the pink loom that sits inside of the, the petals. And so it, uh, it actually glows a really nice pink color at night and, and is, uh, is a really nice design. So I could see maybe using, using it for something like that, more jewelry-based, but I, I don't think I'm ever going to use it in watches. The effect that GOS has achieved there with it underneath the Mother of Pearl is really neat and is absolutely... Yeah. Unique. I haven't seen that done anywhere else in the industry. I don't. Yeah, I don't know if there's if there's anything that I, I'm not a big fan of Mother of Pearl normally, so I don't know that I would use it in that in that exact way. I've sort of bounced around some ideas of how I could use it with enamel and to maybe try and light up enamel instead of lighting up Mother of Pearl, but that leads to some other issues and whatnot. So I don't know. We'll see. I wouldn't hold your breath if you're thinking, hey, you know, maybe Chris is going to release a watch with a bunch of loom on it probably not going to happen just like i'm very unlikely to ever design a dive watch you know things like that like they're just not um not really in the sort of the design sense that i'm looking for so i'd be surprised if i ever use it in a watch well knowing now that super luminova is a ceramic it could actually potentially hold up to being fired in a kiln and being suspended in enamel as a binder rather than using a resin type binder that's a good point. It's I hadn't thought about that, and and this video does uh, does state they're they're using significantly higher temperatures than what I use for my enamel work. So yeah, there's a there is a chance that it might actually hold up to being fired with the enamel. I don't know how it would affect the enamel though. So one mm -hmm. of the with an enamel, the colors that you're getting out of it are a chemical reaction between the metal salts that are in the enamel and the base metal that you're enameling it on. And so that's why you get different colors if you're enameling on, let's say, gold versus silver versus copper. The exact same enamel is actually going to give you different colors depending on which which metal you have underneath it. And then 
those salts are going to react differently at different temperatures as well. And if you're dealing with translucent enamels like I tend to deal with, then you also have a clarity issue. So something like this is actually going to act as, you know, it's going to create a haze inside of the enamel once it's fired. It may be worth it for the the look that you get. You know, maybe it's something that, that's uh, worthwhile experimenting with in a case where you don't have engine turning through it, where you're trying to see through the, the enamel like I tend to do. You know, maybe it's something that would work well with a cloisonne design or something like that. So, yeah, well, it's, uh, it's something to experiment with and, and see what see what happens. The nice thing is it's it's inexpensive enough that it's it's easy to make up a couple test pieces and and try firing them and see how it works. One area I have not seen Superluminova employed that I would like to see is something along the lines of the constellation displays, or essentially the what the sky looks like overhead, represented in a mechanical watch and timepieces like the the Star Caliber. 2000 or Patek Philippe's Skymoon Tourbillon. I mean, these are some really high-end pieces. I mean, Zizha Lacoutes and a couple of other companies have released pieces in this vein as well. I mean, the Caliber 89 was was another one from, from Patek too. And of course, the Graves super complication. But in nearly all of these instances, the stars are represented in gold. Mm. And I, I think it'd be neat to see the same thing done with Superluminova. That might be interesting. I could also see doing something with the moon in a moon phase where you're you're actually illuminating the moon at night using this. So that might be a, another place where you could do something like a a white enamel that has superlum in it and then maybe print some detail of the moon in black over top of it so that you get a little bit of of texture there as well, visual texture. So that might be interesting because then you'd have uh, then you'd have a moon phase that would show up like that. That might be kind of cool. Uh, that, that certainly has some possibilities. I, I know for sure that I wouldn't use it in a traditional way, but experimenting with some of its some of the alternative things that you could do with it, and the fact that you can fire it and or potentially fire it might also be good. The only problem I could see with the firing though might be because because I'm not using and in an environment for it. So I'm just, you know, I'm just firing my enamels in, in oxygen uh, because that oxygen is important for the way that the the metals in the enamel actually react. It's that, you know, they are they are oxides that are in there. So it is important that they that they do react with oxygen. And I'm not sure how the superluminova would react at those temperatures in oxygen. Uh, because it may be that they shouldn't be oxidizing at high temperature, and that may destroy them. So anyway, mm-hmm. there's some experimentation to be done there to see what happens with it. Yes, Sarpaneva has done some neat moon phase displays that, that glow in, in different ways using various luminous pigments and, and different approaches to applying superluminova to a timepiece. Uh, it's done some some really unique pieces. I mean, he's certainly known for his moon phase display. In the vein of applying high-tech technologies to fine watchmaking and high-end collaborations and, and partnerships, Frédéric Constant has recently announced a, a brand new escapement and oscillator design that they've developed in partnership with Flexus. And this is a, a 40 hertz silicon escapement that employs a, a bistable mechanism to essentially integrate the functions of the pallet fork and the oscillator into one unit. If you aren't familiar with the concept of a a bistable mechanism, there's a a really well-done video by Derek Mueller over at Veritasium, who we've mentioned here on the show in the past, that delves into a number of examples of, of bistable mechanisms and their benefits and the process of developing them. It's just a really simple technology that has really started to become exploited in our modern era with all the sorts of simulations and whatnot that you can do on the computer. It is a mechanism that is stable in two positions. So with this new escapement from Frédéric Constant, when the escape wheel delivers energy 
to the oscillator. It will snap the oscillator from one orientation to another and vice versa back and forth for as long as there's energy being delivered through the gear train from the mainspring. Seeing this thing in operation and seeing it vibrating at 40 hertz is impressive. Typically, you're, you know, these sorts of things you're seeing vibrating at the speed or because of some kind of electromechanical mechanism and seeing a mechanical mechanism doing this thanks to these two states that it's stable in and the fact that the, the silicon is able to actually handle moving between these two states quite rapidly. And it's, it is a, an impressive little thing to see. You almost think that when you're seeing the uh, video of it, that it's, it's showing it in, you know, faster than real time, but it isn't, it's, it is a one-to-one real time. And it it is a fascinating little mechanism. It'll be interesting to see if anybody else goes down this road. It I could see there being some potential benefits and some potential problems from a servicing point of view, uh, because depending on how this lasts and how it holds up, you know, it may actually hold up to being serviced in very long intervals, right? Because you don't need to worry about lubrication inside of here, and it it potentially could run for years without needing the kind of, of servicing that a normal watch escapement works uh, or requires. And the other thing is that it, this silicon part is going to be relatively inexpensive for them to make in, in large numbers. And one of the things we know is that when you're, when you're producing any silicon part, that first initial part is, is usually quite expensive. But with a lot of the, the mass manufacturing techniques that we've designed for the integrated chip market, it's very easy to manufacture a lot of this stuff now to well within the standards of that are required for watchmaking. So it may also be that these are very easy to, to service in the long run because you can just buy an inexpensive part from them to to drop in and, and replace the the worn one. So it'll be interesting to see exactly where this goes and, and what they end up doing with it. Mm-hmm. Silicon tech is certainly trickling down market in, in the realm of horology. I mean, you can get a, a TSO now for a few hundred dollars that has a silicon hairspring in it. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you wanted a silicon hairspring a decade ago, I mean, you'd have to fork out tens of thousands of dollars for one of the advanced research pieces from Patek Philippe. Mm-hmm. On the servicing side of things, running at that speed, your silicon components are likely going to be absolutely fine and unfazed. And the nice thing about silicon and silicon is that you don't have to lubricate it, which was one of the, the benefits that Techfully touted with their Pulsomax escapement. Uh, but the rest of the gear train, uh, it may end up serving up some problems there. Because even just comparing timepieces that, that operate at much lower frequencies, uh, jumping, say, from 18,000 beats per hour to 28.8, you're going to notice a, a different room where on the pivots in the gear train. Mm-hmm. And then again, going from 28,800 beats per hour up to 36,000 beats per hour. Again, there's generally more wear and tear noticeable on the pivots with within the actual gear train. Mm-hmm. Well, I have a, a deep appreciation for bistable mechanisms, and I admire the pioneering work Flexus has achieved with this new oscillator and escapement. I think it's a mistake to show it off through the aperture in the dial just because of how fast it is beating away there. Yeah. I find there's something humane and almost soothing about watching a mechanical timepiece tick away at a rate of five to eight times per second, but witnessing the oscillator vibrating a literal order of magnitude more than that every time you look down at your wrist, I think you're going to find it just feels downright unnerving. Like just every time you look at your wrist, you're going to be like, oh, time's flying away from me. I, I got to get moving. I got to, I got to get going. I'm, I'm can't sit still. It's just because this thing's just blazing down there on your wrist. Whereas playing this speed on out on an infinite spectrum, I find Seiko's spring drive mechanism to be very soothing. You're just watching this smooth, uninterrupted flow of, of the second hand move around the dial. So I, I think this particular implementation kind of lands in the, the uncanny valley between the two. Whereas I think that would be less noticeable if you didn't actually see the oscillator moving there on the on the dial. They may have been going for the 
you know, the the look that you're getting out of a tourbillon and expecting people to be, you know, interested in seeing it like they do with a tourbillon carriage. But unlike a tourbillon carriage, this is moving, as you say, orders of magnitude faster. It really is quite quick. I, I think it would be more interesting to be able to just see it from the back so you can turn it over and see what's going on. But seeing it on the dial, I think, is is going to be problematic, uh, especially because the rest of the dial is relatively, it's a relatively classic dial otherwise. Yeah, I think it's I think it's going to be kind of challenging to look at this watch on for, for any length of time just because of that that oscillator bouncing back and forth so quickly. The Swiss watchmaking industry certainly seems to be embracing silicon, particularly in this domain. There have been a number of other companies releasing similar approaches to actually breaking down time into these discrete elements. I mean, you've got the Zenith Defy, and then things like the Jean Pergot Constant Force Escapement that was released a number of years ago. The one nice thing about this piece from Frédéric Constant, which is something that FC has been very good at with a, a number of, of different complications and whatnot in horology, is the price point. That They've really been able to, to drop the price on this sort of novelty and, and make it much more accessible than what you'd find with, say, the, the offerings from GP or Zenith. It certainly is a reasonable price for for what they're they're doing here. The one thing that I was a little surprised with is that they're claiming that this is only going to hit cost standards of minus four plus six seconds a day. I'm a little surprised that they're not claiming higher. Maybe they can't guarantee accuracy higher than that. Uh, but I'm a little surprised that they're they're sticking to those standards, considering the the high frequency should get you even more accuracy than than that. So. It'll be interesting to see in real world what what the numbers actually are on this uh, this watch. Well, the means by which it's regulated is still very similar to a, a traditional balance wheel. You're moving these inertial weights just like you would in any free sprung balance in order to affect how well it's keeping time. You're right. While the, the adjustments are being done the same way, the whole point of the high frequency is to avoid the problems of being bumped in as well as the orientation affecting the watch as much so i if you can time it by changing your weights around and and doing that that's fine it should still stay more accurate because it is less affected by the things which are going to affect a normal balance wheel that's as it's going around and that's the whole point of having these lightweight high frequency oscillators like this Mm -hmm. Yeah, I certainly agree with you that higher frequency will hide a number of errors, but you are still dealing with other factors that, that do play into how something is going to keep time. And who knows, given how fast this thing is operating, it, it may also be susceptible to some of the same problems that the Accutron watches encountered, in which a, a bump at the wrong time could actually cause you to skip a few beats. And you end up not keeping time as accurately simply because the margin of error there between each tick and talk is so small. And the amount of engagement, therefore, is also quite small. I'm surprised they're only shooting for, for cost spec because even Rolex now is doing minus two plus two seconds a day off the line. In practice, the pieces coming off the line are actually in my experience, operating even better than that. I drop a brand new Rolex on the timing machine. It's just flat lines in all positions. It's just mm -hmm. zero seconds per day. It is mind-rending how precisely they've been able to dial in the precision of their chronergy escapement and their parachrome hairspring. Watches by SJX has a, a really good overview of this new escapement from Frederic Constant, which we'll, we'll link to in the show notes. And they also include a small video clip of it in action so you can actually see or, or at least get some sense of how fast it's moving because it's actually moving faster than the frames of a video would be able to capture. Another interesting bit of news that came across my radar through Watches by SJX is uh, a new caliber from Citizen. And it is a high-end caliber, just something that Citizen hasn't 
traditionally been known for. And they've actually developed this caliber in partnership with Le Joux Perret. And it's worth noting that Citizen also owns Le Joux Perret. They, they bought them. So technically, it's still part of Citizen, but it is a, a Swiss arm of Citizen. And it's finished quite well. And they've done a, a really nice job with it. And uh, what I, I love seeing here, as always, in, in any mechanical watch, is they went free sprung. So got a, a nice free sprung balance in there. And it, it's similar to the Patek Philippe regulating system, their, their Gyromax regulating system in the way that it's regulated. Although it is slightly different in its own flavor. And I do appreciate that they have differentiated out a, a fine system of adjustment and a, a more coarse-grained system of adjustment there on the balance wheel by having the inertia weights only being about half the size on the fine adjustments as compared to the, the more coarse-grained adjustment. It is it is interesting seeing Citizen diving into a slightly higher-end mechanical watch. They, they've been doing a lot of interesting work in the quartz world. And in fact, they've got a quartz movement. I think it's accurate to one second a year, which is insane for something that's internally regulated like that. So it is nice to see them working on something mechanical. It's a nice little movement, and it looks great. I don't know what they're planning on doing with it in terms of a product. I know that the watch that it's sitting in on this is a, a sort of a sports watch, a steel sports watch with a steel bracelet, which uh, looks good if that's what you're if that's what you're sort of looking for. But I don't know when this is actually going to hit the market. But because uh, I think this one that's up on SJX is actually a prototype movement and prototype watch. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they do acknowledge that it is indeed a, a prototype. So the finishing isn't quite up to the level that they intend to have on the actual final product. But even still, it, it is uh, a noteworthy new addition to the landscape of watch calibers that are out there. And in some other prototype news, back in the summer, we touched on an open source project, quote unquote, open source project called the Open Movement Project. And they have now announced and released 3D plans for the caliber that they intend to produce. They have released 3D models of it. You know, so I've, I downloaded those and I took a look through it. I, I'm not sure that this movement is going to set the world on fire, but it is nice to see that they have actually put it out there. It sounds like they have a manufacturing partner who's interested in actually doing the work. They're still looking to collect enough money to have the first run of movements made. I'm still kind of curious to see where they go with this. Is this something that they intend to manufacture and make available as full movements or... Is it something where they can supply particular parts of it to somebody? Uh, it might be interesting to be able to say, "All right, I, I, you know, I understand what you're doing. That's great. I like your, you know, your escapement. I want to buy just the escapement from you, and see if see if you can purchase just parts of it like that, or whether they plan on doing that at all. And maybe something where they decide to to just say, "All right, now we've done the work and the development. You know, you guys are on your own to try and manufacture this. I'll be curious to see how." how that plays out and and whether they're able to produce it in, in enough volume to actually make it worthwhile purchasing. Yeah, I mean, certainly no Rajep Rajepi in, in terms of the, the, the design and, and the aesthetic <laughs> of it. This looks a lot like the sort of watch caliber that you'd end up with if you were designing by committee, which is effectively what is transpiring here. I mean, there are members of the project literally have voting rights and can make suggestions and whatnot. So this is a design by committee watch caliber. And I think where they're positioning it is to have something to fall back on should ETA completely close off the supply again. They've been loosening up on their the restrictions in re recent years and starting to supply outside companies again, although still not at the same level that they were you know, 10, 20 years ago. Yeah, the, the intention of this was supposed to be to make sort of a, a good, stable sort of workhorse movement that, that people could use and, and be able to base other other work on. It's not 
really thin enough to sit there and add a lot of complications onto it without, you know, really beefing up your, your watch. They do have it in both an automatic and a manual configuration, which is nice. Uh, they have a date option on it as well, which is, you know, which is pretty standard. I could see it replacing an ETA movement. It, it has sort of the same look and feel as an ETA movement. I think it'd be fine. I, I don't see why it would be problematic. But as I said, I don't I don't think it's going to set the world on fire in terms of, let's say, an independent maker going in and really seeking this out because this is a, a really good looking movement that's going to set their watch apart and and sort of make it look different than than what everybody else is doing. I think the the average watch collector, if they looked at this, they wouldn't necessarily recognize it as being something different than, you know, a standard Etta or a Salita or something like that. So we'll see. I'm I'm curious to see when they get them manufactured and how they respond and and work and and function and whatnot and and sort of what their their reliability is like. But it's nice to see that they're finally getting some information out there. Yeah, the design of it certainly seems inspired by the standard fare of workhorse calibers that are out there mm -hmm. right now. Yeah. And I think really the success of it's going to, to depend dramatically on what price point they hit when it comes to selling these. If they decide to sell these as movements, you know, if I sit down and say, all right, I want to buy 50 of these, how much am I going to pay per movement for them? If they're not producing it at a sort of a competitive rate to what other people are doing, I don't see there being enough interesting about this particular movement to say, all right, I'm going to buy this versus buying something from Salida or Etta. Well, given what we've touched on recently in, in terms of your aspirations for, for your own watches, I don't really see this as being something that, that you would drop into to any of the pieces that you, you aspire to make. No, no, I, I, I don't see it being interesting for me and my production watches other than maybe as a, you know, as an experimental piece just to see what it's like and, and maybe see about modifying it a little bit. One of the nice things about it is the fact that it does, you know, with the 3D model that's there, I can get exact dimensions off of the gear train, for instance. So it then gives me an easy route to be able to redesign the gear train. I don't have to go and sit there and measure everything and, you know, try and figure out uh, and reverse engineer what an existing movement is. And that's why I say that it'll be, it'll be interesting to see what they offer in terms of parts afterwards. Uh, maybe, you know, if I could sit there and buy... Uh, let's say wheels and and an escapement or something like that from them and just say look i'm going to make the the main plate and the bridges and everything myself and and i'll source the jewels and everything myself and i'll source you know whatever i'll make the the parts for the keyless works and everything myself and and do all that work maybe it's interesting and maybe it's it's a, a good alternative if I'm interested in sort of making a very customized version of this watch, but the way that it stands right now, it, it doesn't really offer enough interesting or useful features to me to to sort of want to move away from the sorts of Chen movements that I've been looking at. Even from things like a power reserve point of view, these these have a have a sort of a at the low end of what what's considered a standard power reserve these days. Nothing like the 96 hours that I'm getting out of the the Swords at Chen movements that I'm I'm going to be using. So I, I don't know how much I would be interested in using these, but it's nice to see that that data is out there. It's nice to see that it's an option for people who maybe are are looking to use at a movements, and as you say, maybe that they get taken away from them. So at least this is an alternative, and it is nice to see somebody at least making the effort. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting that you note not using. The, the jewels from their particular layout because i'd have to say that the size of the jewels that they've settled on is not <laughs> to my personal taste it definitely mm. by all appearances seems to be a, a cost-cutting measure to use yeah. the jewels that they have they're incredibly small so you're not going to get a very good reserve of lubricant in there mm -hmm. and it's also going to be a pain <laughs> to get the lubricant <laughs> in there it, yeah. when you're servicing these it's just smaller jewels cost less money you know if they can get themselves priced somewhere between a salita and an edda movement they they might do well with it but again i don't know what their their plan is i don't know if it's something that they want to go into the manufacturing side of this or 
if they're they've convinced their manufacturing partner to be able to do that i don't i don't know what their their long term goal is for that but um it's an interesting project but it's not high up there on my list of of things that i'm going to spend a lot of time trying to trying to use in my own work yeah right now they seem to be in quasi kickstarter mode running their own campaign yeah. to to sell the first 10 timepieces but they haven't actually listed the price of the of those timepieces you you have to you know submit an interest in it first i think they're yeah i think they there was mentioned somewhere and it's not inexpensive like it's in the i seem to remember it's in like the 20,000 euro range i think for those one of those 10 prototype pieces which feels like a a hefty sum to pay for <laughs> Uh, th- this caliber of caliber. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I can certainly think of a, a, a number of incredible timepieces you could pick up for that amount of money. Yeah, particularly with an unknown sort of case and dial and everything like that. You don't know what the those are going to look like in terms of, you know, the quality. They have published photos of the, the case and bracelet, or uh, strap rather, and, and the dial and, and the hands. It's all renders. But at least it gives you a, a sense of what it is they'll be releasing. Yeah, really. The, at that point, if you're if you're pu- putting out that kind of money for it, it's there to be supporting the project as opposed to getting mm-hmm. true value for the the watch that you're buying. Yeah, absolutely. It is a gesture of, of support. Open movement prototypes are still in the the render stage of development. Uh, things are, are starting to come together for you. On the production side, this week has been uh, an interesting week in terms of getting things into the into the shop. I've been working with a few different companies to get things that are I'm not I'm not interested in working on and making myself. So things like the straps, I finally have my my watch straps in hand, and uh, I'm, I'm very happy with the the look and feel of those. I think that the the choice of straps that I went with, I'm I'm happy with. I may make a few changes going forward in terms of maybe a couple of different color designs in the future but the straps I've I'm couldn't be happier with the uh, the feel of the straps in particular super super pleased with that the other thing that I was a little bit concerned about and I didn't really want to get involved with myself was making the packaging for this watch of course anytime you're you're dealing with any kind of a luxury product you want to make sure that the unboxing experience is something enjoyable for the person who's just invested in this piece that you've made. And so you want to make sure that you have a box that is, it's appropriate for what it is that you've just made. And so I commissioned a wooden box, a custom wooden box out of the UK. They're made of English ash. They're a beautiful sort of indigo dyed ash. So a nice dark color to it. And I've experimented with a few different laser engraved designs for the top. I decided to try some engine turned patterns that have been laser engraved into the top of the box. And I wasn't sure how that was going to look. That that sort of mechanical geometric shape and, and look and how it would blend with the texture and the grain of the wood itself. And I have to say, the interplay between the two of them is excellent. It's not at all the same as seeing engine turning in metal, where you're getting that, you know, that bright reflection off of the the bright cut surfaces. But it still gives you a really interesting interplay of light on the and texture on the top of the the box. So super pleased with the way that's come out. So now I can put an order in for uh, for the actual uh, production boxes, which was great. Couldn't be happier with the way that those have come out, though. Mm-hmm. It really does lend a nice touch to the cover of the box, having the the pattern in there, and the way that the light interplays off of the wood because of those cuts in the wood. And it's not something I, I recall having seen on any other wood box. So it's a it's a nice personal touch you've added there. Yeah, most people tend to go with printing or sometimes with a plaque or something like that. A few people I know have done engraving, laser engraving on the tops of boxes and uh, and have done a few interesting things with that, although a lot of people often go with something very simple. Uh, this is certainly more complex than what most people would go for. 
And and that's always a danger, right? You, it's really difficult to balance out how much do you put on top of something like this? And at what point does it overwhelm the design? Oftentimes that simpler is better. You know, just having the logo sitting there in the middle of the box is, is nice. And, and that's a classic way to go for it. But at the same time, you know, doing something unique like this, again, I don't, I haven't seen too many people doing any kind of engine turn pattern on their packaging, whether it's through, you know, printing or whether it's through engraving or something like that. I I don't see a lot of that happening. So it it was something that I wanted to experiment with. And I just sort of, I included them as, as experiments to do at the last minute. I hadn't really given it a huge amount of thought before the week that I I submitted the designs. For months, I've been sort of thinking, oh, I'm just going to put the, the simple name logo on there. But I'm really happy that I had them run off a couple of different experiments to see how they would look. I, I had tried them on some uh, scrap wood at the studio because we, we have a CO2 laser at the, the studio, so I did try it on that. But the look is very different going from the light pale colored wood that I had that I was engraving at the shop versus the darker dyed wood that they're using the, the the look and feel of it is very very different and i'm really glad that i did it because it's it's totally worth it yeah i think those last minute experiments will be of benefit to the final product here because the way the the light plays off the wood particularly in the that radial pattern i could see that box just sitting on a counter and as you're walking by it the way the light would catch your eye as you're going by it would almost be like the box saying to you come over here open me up come look at me yeah the the nice thing about radial patterns like that is that they really do change a lot depending on how you move and how you look at it i've been a big fan of radial engine turn patterns in my work everything from that the back of that iphone that i did a number of years ago uh, a number of the pendants that I've done over the years have had radial patterns. The dial that I'm working on right now has a radial pattern on it. I think that the, they're really underused in engine turning, and they they really have a look and feel that you don't get through the circular patterns that you get on a Rose engine, for instance. You know, I know that that's classically what what people like Breguet are using. There, a lot of people like to a lot of the work that Kari does, there's a lot of circular rose engine work that's done on those. And a lot of the straight line work that's being done is in things like the basket weave patterns and the clou de Paris, things like that. You don't see a large number of designs with these radial patterns, these radial straight line patterns. And if you use them well, they they really do stand out and they, they, they're, they're tough to look away from. And it's played out in this case as well, even though you don't get those bright cuts. Just seeing the wood in different ways and, and the way that parts of the, that pattern are, you know, look under certain lights and whatnot. It, uh, it really does make a, make a, a nice sort of package in the, at the end of it. And you also get that texture as well, that feel that you're not going to get any other way because it is a deep engraving. Yeah, I, I still haven't decided exactly on which one I'm going to do for the final project. I think the radial pattern that I've chosen is probably going to be the one I go with. I do also have a circular pattern that I used, uh, a barley, a classic barley row pattern that I used. I may also experiment with a few other patterns just here in the shop and see if any of the other ones sort of jump out at me even more. But uh, right now, I think that radial pattern is probably the one that I'm going with. And uh, we'll make sure to get some some good photos of that uh, closer to the release date. I'm, I'm not going to release the, the photos of it just yet, but closer to the release date of the watch we'll i'll start posting some photos of the uh, the packaging as well now from the limited time that i've seen them the, the radio pattern would certainly have my vote as well i think in this application it, it strikes just the right note mm. about balancing that simplicity and sophistication it, it's been the overwhelming favorite of everybody who's seen it now i, I maybe about 10 people have seen the uh, the final prototypes and overwhelmingly everybody has liked that radial pattern. So I think it's going to be really tough to bump that one from the top of the list. I may also try a couple of other radial patterns just to see if there's maybe something that works a little bit better, maybe slightly different frequency of the the sine wave itself. These The lines that are radiating out from the center 
are a standard sine wave pattern. So I may experiment a little bit with changing up the uh, the frequency as well as the amplitude of those uh, those sine waves. I think the number of cuts that I've got around the the outside, I think that probably works well. Just because if you if you try and do too many, then it ends up looking looking a little bit weird down towards the center. And if you don't have enough, then it doesn't look good enough around the outside of the box. So I think I've got a a good balance of sort of the number of divisions around the radial pattern. But I may experiment a little bit with the the actual sine wave itself and see if I can find something that that maybe works a little bit better. Well, we'll keep the the finished look under wraps for now. But since it isn't secret sauce, since we've touched on it here on the show before, for anyone who's wanting to experiment with applying guilloche patterns to wood or or to print work or to metal work, whatever they may want to apply it to themselves. What is the software that you are using to do this? The application I'm using is called Accentro. There's two different versions of it. There's a pro version and a light version. Uh, The light version is the one that I use. It certainly has all the features that I happen to need. It was designed by a Russian software developer who made it for the security printing industry. Uh, A lot of security printing obviously went from using manual machines like like the Rose engines and the straight line engines that were being used in the early days of security printing into actual graphic design applications to be able to do the same kinds of things. And this was designed specifically for being able to do and design security printing. So Accentro is the name of the product. The light version is relatively inexpensive. I want to say it's around $50 American for that. The The pro version is a little more expensive. I want to say it's five or $600, but the, it's excellent. And you can dive really deep into doing extremely complex patterns, you know, interesting gradients and things like that. If you want to be able to do your own certificates and things like that, that are that are unique and would be very challenging to be able to reproduce, then this is the way to go with it. Uh, if you want to make your own money, uh, you could certainly design your own money with this. I use it for just doing very simple engine turning patterns and sort of proving out the way that some of them are going to work. And it's nice for that. And, and a number of the people that I know that use it are doing it for that to experiment with different counts of, let's say, the number of, ro- of lobes on a rosette or the particular patterns that you're going to be designing for a pattern bar and how they sort of interplay with each other and, and how you can move those uh, those patterns around and offset them a little bit to get different designs. So it's a, it's a nice way of sort of being able to experiment with, with engine turning patterns without needing to, to spend a lot of time and money let's say, machining actual rosettes or actual pattern bars. After months and months of work researching and sourcing components, it's nice to finally see things clicking together for you and and product and and physical goods actually starting to arrive there at the studio. And hopefully by next episode, you should actually have some of your, your bridges or at least the prototype bridges for your movement in hand as well. Thanks for listening to Off Hours. You can find detailed show notes at offhours.show. If you'd like to keep up to date with the show, follow us on Twitter at Off Hours. John can be found on Twitter at Under the Loop, and Chris can be found on Twitter and Instagram at Silver underscore Hand.